Hey, you're listening to the SubClub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me today, Revenue Cat CEO, Jacob Eide. Our guest today is Giancarlo Musetti, Growth Product Manager at Ad Hoc Labs. Ad Hoc Labs makes several apps, including Firewall and Dialed, but is most well-known for Burner, an app that allows you to create multiple phone numbers to protect your privacy and better manage communication. On the podcast, we talk with Giancarlo about soft versus hard paywalls, how to think about product experiments, and why removing friction from onboarding didn't actually help. Hey, Giancarlo, thanks for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today. Hey, David. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to kick things off talking about uh, the company you work for, Ad Hoc Labs. Uh, it's one of those companies, you know, kind of like Fishbrain and some of the others we've had on the podcast. Where it's a huge business, but you don't really know about it unless you know about it. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Ad Hoc Labs and uh, Burner, your flagship product. Yeah. So Ad Hoc Labs are the makers of Firewall, Burner, and Dialed. Uh, so Firewall is a robo-calling solution. Um, Burner is our flagship product. And that's a second phone number app. So you can get a second phone number, make calls and texts from that app. And that's very popular for people working in sales. I want a specific area code, a specific city, mm. uh, popular for people who just generally want to keep uh, their business number private um, and just generally you know, have anonymity um, when they meet people. Yeah, so when that's I, really so when cool. I get uh, when I get sales calls that come from my tiny three thousand person town, I know who to blame. Uh, yeah, you, you can blame Burner. <laughs> my my wife has actually used Burner professionally. Uh, one of the many apps we've had on the podcast that I'm a fan of. Um, she's a, a licensed professional counselor, and so when she puts her number out there, she doesn't want it, you know, to go to her cell phone and doesn't want callbacks to come from her cell phone. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a super cool product. And you mentioned, uh, leading up to the, the podcast when we were chatting dating, I hadn't thought about that as a use case. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're putting your number out there uh, on Tinder and, and other dating apps, like you don't, you don't want your real number that, that people are going to have forever. Uh, so yeah, it seems like there's, there's like all these, all sorts of use cases professionally, personally, um, you know, putting your number out on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. It's like, there's, there's just so many use cases to have that second number that you can just burn, which is cool. Like the the whole like name and branding around burner. But yeah. So, you know, one of the things you put in, in your notes for, for our, our conversation today, it's, it's a top 100, 150 uh, revenue grossing app in, in the app store. It's a, it's a huge business. So a lot of people have this need how long have you been at the company and, and um, you know, what have you seen growth wise or, or like what is really resonating with people? Yeah. Uh, so I've been with a company for a year now. It's funny that, you know, Burner had steady growth for, you know, several years. I mean, it's been a top five revenue grossing app in the utility category um, for, I think, over five years now. And yet in the last couple of years, Growth has like has started to grow even faster, um, and I think a lot of that is thanks to the experimentation um, mm. that we've been doing, which has been awesome to see. 
Well, I yeah. want to know more about the experimentation. Tell me what I got to do to make my app go inflected. <laughs> it's clearly that whatever you discovered is universal and will apply everywhere. That's a well-known fact in, in apps. So, Oh, yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, several I, uh, experiments I wanted to dig into. Um, one of the ones you, you talked about was a soft paywall. Can you tell us a bit about that experiment and, and, and what kind of results uh, you saw? Definitely. So the soft paywall was, uh, there was a time when you could, you know, download the burner app and just create a sample burner um, without starting a, a free mm. trial. And so generally we've been shifting towards this subscription model where people need to subscribe to use burner rather than just paying one off for a number. And so the soft paywall was basically a seven day free trial uh, paywall where you, you subscribe to a seven day free trial SKU. And it's a soft paywall because there's a maybe later or either a maybe later button or just some button at the bottom that lets you like pass the paywall mm -hmm. and get into the app. Um, and so the soft paywall we noticed uh, really helped increase subscription revenue. Um, and then a little bit after that, we tested the hard paywall and that's where we removed um, that like bypassing button and people just had to start a seven day free trial. And that's where we, we started to see tons of growth. And that's kind of roughly when I joined the team. And then since then, we have been breadcrumbing our way from our previous revenue model, which is credits, to subscriptions. Hmm. And so my time here has been focused on increasing monthly recurring revenue. And we've had several different experiments that have helped us get there. Yeah, before we, we move on to those experiments, yeah. I wanted to ask a, a few more follow-ups. Um, yeah, it sounds like uh, the hard paywall was done around the time that you got there. Do you, do you recall, and have you talked to any of your colleagues, did, did Apple hassle y'all at all? I know like in the past, the, the hard paywall is something they've been sensitive to, like a free app has to have some kind of free component. Like when you say hard paywall, is there any functionality in the app at all if you don't uh, start a free trial or subscribe, or, or is it just completely blocked? There's nothing you can do in the app without uh, subscribing. Actually, if you start the free trial and then you decide you don't want the subscription, you use prepaid numbers instead mm -hmm. of subscribing. So subscriptions aren't the absolute only way okay. to use mm -hmm. Burton. Did you have to start like some IAP trial to get past that screen though? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we've done that. I mean, I, this is not me personally, but elevate, we've done that. I know Apple's okay with it, uh, but it's interesting because you can always like start the trial and cancel. And then, yeah. and then, and then you have to have, it's, 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 it's odd because at that point you have to have a free experience. Like you can't like kick somebody back out. Like once they've canceled a free trial, um, maybe you can after it expires, I suppose, but um, they've been okay with that. Um, but it doesn't. So, so the way you described it, it sounds like the soft paywall performed less well than the hard paywall. Um, Correct. Yeah. Uh, which this is one of these things that like, and why testing and data are always so powerful over any sort of intuition, because you think uh, like, ah, oh, that's a bad user experience. Oh, that's going to turn a lot of people off. And you're like, yes, but also you're showing it to a lot more people, <laughs> right? Like just like uh, the way that usage decays and interest decays so quickly in an app usage, like, the more you push to the beginning, the more like urgency kind of you drive for the user experience. It's not necessarily in the book of like user-friendly UX. It's not 
oh, I wouldn't say always it's the most user friendly, right? Like user you most user friendly, but here's a free app that, you know, is gonna run out of money right. and crash soon. You could really can only figure this out through experimentation. Um, there are some like high level things that work, but um, you know, every app is different. I'm in, it's, it's interesting to me though, is I, I have a there's this app called Open Phone, which is a phone number for small businesses. It's like, if you're a plumber, you run a small business, you can have this like shared phone number and stuff like this. This was a big problem they actually had was people trying to do the burner use case <laughs> with their product because they had free trials up front. Um, and they were like, not, they were not tooled. They were not tooled to um, accept this kind of usage, right? Where it was like, get a phone number because, because of the backing costs, like the underlying costs of getting a number and things like that. Going back to the discussion, and maybe we can expand a little bit here on how you've navigated this transition of usage-based or like consumption-based pricing to subscription. Isn't there some difficulty with, um, you know, somebody wants to use a hundred numbers? Does the subscription package like give them infinite numbers, or is it like some number per month? Or how does it, how did you package it? Yeah, so we you you can't get infinite numbers. You right now can get either a one one, three, or 10 phone number subscription package. Okay. And you can still purchase prepaid numbers in addition to that. So if you want seven numbers, you can get a three phone number subscription and then a few other prepaid numbers, right? The way we packaged was like, there was you know some discussion around, should we be able to give them the ability to purchase any number of subscription numbers, right? Four, five, six, seven, eight. And we basically opted not to do that because the UX would be kind of weird. Yeah. Especially like upgrades and downgrades and and um, just SKU yeah. management on your side as well is such a pain. Right, right. And and one thing we've noticed is that SKU management does take some time, but doesn't take that much time. And so we've generally, when we are considering creating a new SKU, we're not too worried about the SKU management part of it. Um, but we do kind of think about What's what's gonna actually help the user in the best way and also increase revenue, right? And so we ended up launching the ten line experiment, um, and, and that was basically a ten phone number subscription package, which is doing really well. Um, mm. A lot of users have liked that. I guess we if also, you have habitual use, like you need as many as you can get, right? You know, if you're somebody who uses it every day, like yeah. uh, is, it, ten is probably not even enough, right? Yeah. And it also depends on the use cases, right? Because there's people who have one phone number, they use that specific phone number every day. But then there's people who are like dating, for example, and they want a separate number for each person, right? Because if one mm -hmm. person becomes spammy, they want to delete that number, but they don't want to delete all of right. the contacts they have, right? <clears throat> mm -hmm. And so the same, I've heard this in like the business use case as well, where someone has a ton of different contractors and has a different number for each contractor and has like 50 different numbers, you know? So uh, one other takeaway there is talking to users is really interesting because you learn a lot about your app and how it's used. Yeah. Especially for an app like that, where the it's a utility that has a, a, a number of different applications, right? Did you line the subscription products up with like tiers of consumables you were already selling? Like, did you on the consumable... Like, could you buy credits at any granularity, like one, two, 10, 20, or like, did you have packages as well? There are packages for credits. Okay. It's Did like, you align them like the subscription ones and the no? So you have like they're they're all offset from each other. Yeah. So the way it works is to buy a number, you can either buy a prepaid burner or a subscription number. 
the prepaid burners, there's a list, there was like five of them. Um, there was like a mini burner, which would give you X number of text messages per month and Y minutes of calling. Mm. And so there were different types of prepaid numbers that offered oh, different okay. amounts of calling and texting. In order to buy a prepaid number, you had to buy credits. And there was like five tiers for buying credits. You could buy like 25 credits at one oh, okay. time. And the credits had a different, like they had the the different tiers of number had like a credit cost. Yes, exactly. Interesting. That's so, much more like uh, Zynga land. <laughs> like when yeah. I used to do free to play stuff, right? You had like, you had some intermediary currency, right? Um, Cause I, what I was gonna, I was curious about is like, how did you discount? Cause, because, you know, people are going to buy bundles of numbers um, mm. because they get some discount, right? Like, why would I buy three? You know, assuming I'm not, maybe I don't need three. Maybe I only need two. And then I lost money because I didn't use all of them for the month. I was curious, like, how did you think about pricing for those? Like, how did you think, or like, actually not even how do you think like right now, like what, how much do I save if I buy three on a subscription versus three ad hoc? Yeah, for sure. So generally subscriptions are going to be way cheaper. And we intentionally did that because subscription revenue is more reliable. It makes our business more valuable. And it's also giving a discount to the user. So it's like a win-win situation. Right. Um, And and that's kind of been the reason we've been kind of aiming towards increasing MRR. Yes. Is is it like 10%, 20%? Do you know offhand, like roughly, like what I can save by signing up versus uh, buying ad hoc? So just comparing the like one phone number plan to the 10 phone number plan is a significant discount. It's like, it, it can be 15, 20%. Um, yeah. And then like going to the annual plan from the monthly plan for any, like the three line or the 10 line is another, is like 20%. Sure. So the idea is, you know, the more you pay upfront in like the subscription, you're going to save a lot more. In the long yeah, run. I mean, you're buying a you're you're selling a futures contract, right? <laughs> you're saying like, <laughs> we'll give you a discount if you commit. You know, if you put up this much capital now, and then you'll have access, and then it's up to the consumer to decide like what their future consumption is going to be. Um, yeah. But then you can afford a discount, right? And then, like you said, it gives your business a lot more price predictability and like um, and stuff like that. I'll just pause and say y'all have a very complicated setup compared to most apps. Right? Totally. Like, That's what I was going to jump in on and say that like my like eyes were glossing over trying to like picture all these. I know and I'm, and I'm grilling you Giancarlo on like exactly what your tears are. And so I'm trying to put this it together is, in my head. But this is great because this, this is something I think a lot of apps myself included are scared of the complexity. Like don't force users to make choices. You know, too many SKUs is going to just confuse them. And so I'm curious your perspective, because it sounds like, you know, hitting that inflection point recently was in part just trying to push everybody to subscription instead of having all that complexity. Is, is, am I understanding right that part of that inflection, it was that simplification, or is there still like a lot of SKUs and a lot that the consumer has to, to understand to use the product and subscribe? Yeah. I mean, I imagine the inflection isn't just that specific experiment, right? right. Like growth, growth is happening for many reasons. We have tons going on on the marketing side as well. We have a lot of stuff um, in the experimentation world that the growth team's working on. And then we also have things outside of that too. So I think it's a, a mixture of different factors that's causing the growth um, and, and not just one thing. But today, is, it, is there less cognitive 
load, like how many SKUs do you present in that initial paywall? Right. Right. So in that initial paywall, we just offer right now a three phone number package that has a monthly and annual option. And part of the breadcrumbing kind of plan of moving from the credit a la carte model to the subscription revenue model, um, the hypothesis was that there are too many products, right? And yeah. that's a little too confusing. And so one of the most successful experiments was removing a bunch of prepaid numbers. Rather than offering five different prepaid numbers, we just offered one, the one that was, um, it's called the, the picture burner and it kind of has like texting, calling, and you can send pictures. And when you say, it, when you say remove numbers, you mean these different tiers, like these different flavors of numbers with limits and capabilities? Yeah, just like removing four products that you could purchase to buy a prepaid number. So rather than having five, which we did before, the treatment in this experiment only had one. Mm-hmm. And right. it just drastically outperformed control. Interesting. Yeah. So that makes sense. Because all of that complexity you and Jacob were going through about the prepay, and I was just losing Oh, well, when track. I heard there were three different I just, levels, I was like, oh boy, we just added another dimension. Yeah. This went from a, this went from a, uh, a spreadsheet to a tensor real fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that's great to hear. So, so it, it was really that simplification process that, that was the successful experiment. And so, so you, you initially present something very simple, and then if they decline that, then they can buy those prepaids and then they kind of get, so are, how many different paywalls do you end up showing? Like, so once they get rid of that initial paywall and they get dropped into the app where they can buy these prepaids, is that a completely separate paywall or do you still have the, the uh, free trial option with that single product monthly or annual? Once they go past the paywall, they can go to subscription management to manage their subscription, upgrade to subscriptions with higher numbers, or they can go to another place in settings to buy the prepaid numbers. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. That's also fascinating. Uh, I, I, this is where I wish we, we had slides. Yeah, we should be doing this like it's a <laughs> webinar visual. or something. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to like have these. Maybe it's uh, all about webinars now. We can. Uh, <laughs> but I did want to talk through some of the uh, unsuccessful experiments. I think, you know, everybody loves to talk about, oh, this did a 10% lift, that did a 25% lift, and this is what you should do. Uh, but understanding the experiments that failed, I think, helps inform uh, the kinds of experiments you want to try. And, and just not enough people talk about the failures. So uh, there were a few here that, that, that you listed as failed experiments. So I'd love for you to talk through the, the annual subscription price testing and, and what failed about that experiment. Yeah, so that experiment was testing the current annual subscription price on the paywall, $59.99 against... $49.99 and $69.99. Um, and you know, the KPI for success here was roughly, I think like there had to be 15% more opt-in for the $49.99 package, or 15%, no less than 15 a 15% drop in opt-in for the $69.99 to break even yeah. on the price difference. And that unfortunately didn't happen. We were just looking back at this experiment a couple of days ago, and it's tough because you can't actually determine whether the treatment is successful. You can estimate whether it's successful by predicting the retention yeah. for the annual subscribers, right? But like for 
you know, there was a significant increase in opt-in for the $49.99 plan, right? You drop the price of the annual SKU, more people are opting in, mm-hmm. but you can't actually measure immediately what the long-term benefit to the business is because you don't know how that cohort of users is going to retain. Are they going to resubscribe after one year? Presumably, it'll be higher retention compared to like $59.99 or $69.99. Yeah. And then what was it? The control price you said was what? $59.99. 60 bucks. So you saw some elasticity standard, right? Like you got higher conversion at a lower price and lower conversion at a higher price. But then um, was it that you didn't feel confident not knowing those renewal rate changes to make a decision or... Was uh was the were the changes just not big enough to justify? We estimated the retention, and you know we landed on oh it looks like it's roughly break even. Yeah, uh, but I I'm very excited to like revisit this a year from now and see if we're wrong, right? Because yeah, that's the beautiful because you have like, cohorts, right? You actually started we have on the those cohort. plans, so you can look at it, you yeah. know, but a year yeah. after, <laughs> it's yeah. not really agile. <laughs> yeah, it's not, and so we obviously we try to be agile. Part of the part of like the experimentation flow is we need roughly one to two weeks for an experiment during onboarding to get statistical significance. And I like to generally run onboarding experiments in parallel with experiments down in the funnel, as long as they're not like price oriented or mm-hmm. going to like confound yeah, you change, the, the, change the wording around the thing you just showed somebody or something like this, right? Yeah. Um, that's great. I mean, a price test. I, when you first said like, oh, $49.99, $69.99 or $79.99, whatever it was, uh, I was like, oh, those prices are too close. <laughs> right? Like you, the closer you get, like the more data you need to show a significance, right? My, my that's page. huge volume too, though. So right, <laughs> but but there's there's the benefit there. If you can't limit the uncertainty on the renewal rates, you're only going to be able. No matter how much conversion rate data you get, you're only going to be able to get so accurate until you have like trustworthy renewal rate data and like it's hard like the app store might look hell like the app store might change the way renewals work in the next 12 months right like there's all kinds of reasons to not like you know so you could you know you could have said like we'll assume that they're the same but it's like well for the 49.99 case you're adding a marginal whatever it is 10 percent more users right and you Mm -hmm. it's it might be a lot to assume that those users who were already on the price margin are going to behave in a similar way. Like, I think it would be pretty foolhardy to be like, they will be at or above the average in terms of renewal behavior as the folks who are all buying at, you know, $59.99, right? So you almost have to assume it's going to be worse, right? Because they're, they're already marginal customers. Um, so yes, yeah, I mean, price experimentation is hard. We know this, like we, when we're on this price experimentation product for years, um, the easy part is running the test. The hard part is the predicted LTV because there is just like a lot of parameters and, and often that the model is very sensitive to, right? Like small changes in your renewal rate create, can create huge swings in your uh, lifetime LTV. Um, and so it's pretty easy. Like, let's say you were testing $10 a year and $60 a year, you can get significance there pretty fast, but yeah. anything more fine, it, it gets closer. So how did you like... How, you were talking about like different amounts of experiments you run. Like, how does how did that experience inform the kind of tests and things that you you focus on now? Because that's what I always found with running a test is like when you have a test that's inconclusive, it's not really a failure. I feel like that's actually 
it's it's a null result is actually interesting because it tells you like hey there's unless you just screwed it up which happens but like a lot of times it tells you like this was a a path that's probably not super rich right so like mm-hmm. how does it focus so well how did you change your philosophy a- after going through that yeah i think philosophy is generally pretty pretty much the same after that right cuz pricing in, in my opinion is still very very important right like it's i think one of the biggest levers and i think even though this experiment in the long run probably has roughly the same ltv for both of those cohorts there's a lot of opt-in in one of the cohorts and not the others and so that speaks to the power of price right and that's mm-hmm. kind of backing up um the other experiments we've run the soft paywall the hard paywall removing specific prepaid burner plans and so on and another experiment you mentioned was removing the screen that lets users choose their full number. I, I'm curious about that one. Cause I mean, I, again, I have used the product and, yeah. and I think I remember it was like years ago when I set up for my wife. And so I'm assuming it was like a, a whole screen where you get to like go through a bunch of different numbers. And I remember like, kind of like when I got the option to pick a number, I, um, you know, you spend time, like you get invested in like, oh, I want to find the best possible number with the right, you know, maybe I can spell something or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm curious about this specific experiment and then why you considered it a failed experiment. Yeah. So to give context, um, before we jump into the experiment, um, I break down in Amplitude, which is a analytics platform for those that don't know, it's a, it helps you understand the user journey. And I break down each step of the funnel for onboarding just to see what is the drop-off at each screen, right? Every screen has a drop-off. There's always some amount of users that stop using the app at every screen. And so the idea is if the screen doesn't add lots of value to the user, let's test removing it so that we can get less drop-off on that part of the onboarding. And so there's a screen... So the way the the funnel works is you have a welcome screen when you open the burner app, you then enter your phone number, then you select an area code. And then after you select an area code, you get a list of a few different options with a full burner number. And the idea here was choosing the area code is really important, but users probably don't want their full number. They don't want to select the full number. It's a lot of cognitive load. It's a lot of numbers I have to pick. It's like nine right. numbers I have to pick. <laughs> lots of lots of information and and things you have to enter. And yeah, you know, users are trying to like get into the app really quickly. And so like let's try to remove that friction. Um, and then we tested that. And the way we set up the experiment is you choose your error code, and then it jumps you to the the screen that usually shows after the full number screen, which is like a congrats, you have this number. And then we also added this little button at the bottom of the next button that basically takes them back so that if they want to go and select the full number, they can actually go Mm. do that. And so it kind of creates this loophole like, okay, if someone really cares about the full number, they can go back and choose that. If not, um, they can click next and get to the paywall. Um, But in the end, this didn't actually outperform. Um, And so the, the primary KPI here was free trial start. It's very difficult to get like lots of data on what percent of each of users in each cohort are actually paying for a subscription seven days after the free trial starts. So for onboarding, I think we were mostly looking at like the free trial opt-in 
mm-hmm. as like a higher level metric to give us uh, an indication of whether this was going to like make us lots of money. And in the end, we decided um, to keep the control. Yeah. So I kind of spoiled the results because I mean, it was exactly like my use case is that after I spent a minute like finding that perfect number and and futzing around, like finding a number, I was like more invested and more likely to start a free trial. Um, So it was like, so maybe the cognitive load was actually creating a little bit more buy-in, a little more sunk cost along the path to starting that free trial. Did, were you able to like measure um, or, or did you look at as part of this experiment, like how much time was spent on that or like how many different numbers people cycled through before they moved to the next step? How much time? I, I don't think we have that data. Conversion um, rate. That's all you care about. <laughs> you know, like you're talking about your funnel. Yeah. That's, it's like, yeah, it's just like, well, yeah, we're on this page. How many people made it to the next page? And then ultimately, how many people started a trial, right? Like, that's what you care about. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the, the the details are probably all not all, all not that informative unless you, you know, maybe one day you'll hire a product manager who's like the product manager of phone sele- phone number selection, right? <laughs> Which <laughs> then they'll have the time to dig into it. Um, yeah. But it's interesting. Funnels are, especially in consumer, just so important, right? You have only have a limited amount of time to make a pitch to somebody, and, and it really can just be how you present it is like, do I convert this person or not? Right. Like some amount of people probably were never going to convert. Some amount of people probably always were, but there's, a, I think, I don't know what number is, but there's people on there that if you just present it in the right, I know I'm like this, like I judge a product like this, if I'm three pages in and I don't feel like, okay, we're heading towards me solving my problem. I'm bounced. Like, give me, I'll try another app. I'm out of here. Um, and especially if I'm not impressed with how the apps put together, I, 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 it doesn't bode well for the rest of the usage experience. Right. Um, but, uh, so it's really important to study these pages, but nothing's in a vacuum. I I always found this with experimenting with onboarding funnels, like you'll take something out, but it's all, you know, you might just be, you're right. in that there's drop off in every page, but it doesn't necessarily mean that page is causing that dropout, right? Like you pull that page out and then that dropout is going to spread between the page before and the page after potentially. Um, so not always the case, right? Like you could put up a screen that is just like very confusing and that would probably cause more dropout. Um, but you know, generally, yes, the fewer pages is better, but also sometimes not if they're really good pages. Right. Uh, and it, like, like David was saying, it creates anecdotally. Um, we did this at elevate where we had a very, very light onboarding when we launched, it was like three questions, sign up, bang, you're done. And then launched you into some brain training games. And then we added this, like literally added 25 steps to the onboarding like as an experiment, it was like a personalization test kind of thing. And I was like, this is not going to work. This is going to ruin the funnels. This is, <laughs> this is going to make our app. Everybody's going to churn whatever. So we a beat it. And yes, it drove down a lot of like number of users getting to the end, but it turned out it didn't affect trial start rate. It didn't affect um, day one retention. It didn't affect a bunch of numbers that I was convinced it would ruin. But honestly, it was just they were good pages and it was shaking off people that were going to turn anyway. Right. It was just moving some of that churn further up. Um, so anyway, this all goes back to the point of like testing is important because there's literally no way you can think about this and figure out what's going to happen. I'm curious, did you end up keeping that 25 step onboarding funnel? I haven't used the app in a while, but yeah, it became a big, it was called onboardio. It was a whole game. Uh, but, but it, it was this like questionnaire. We had you play like a few mind games, like, and then we actually, that, that became the seeding data for what, customized training you received after that. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it wasn't like super crazy scientific. Like, do you like, do you want to work on words? Okay. Yeah. You'll get some more words. Don't, I'm sure it's very scientific and whatever, but like we were, you know, <laughs> trying to ship, uh, and get it out. And, but it created, it gave us, it was two things. One, it gave the opportunity for us to show people what the product was going to do more directly. Right. Um, and I assume like numbers is kind of a good way to show that like, Hey, like we have control of the the phone system and you can type in a phone number. That's kind of cool. So it showed people more what the product would do before they had to commit anything. Right. Like they were Mm -hmm. just playing. Um, and then, uh, two, yeah, it did kind of turning people out that are not going to convert to meaningful users earlier or later doesn't really matter. Right. In fact, it's probably in the benefit of your company. If a user is not going to be a high value or like, good for your brand, or they're not going to be satisfied, it's probably better you turn them out as early as possible. Right. Um, and so by saying like, Hey, this is kind of what the experience is going to be like, people were like bounced. And so, yeah, it turned out it was a, it was a good move. It made the product, it didn't affect any metrics negatively. It might've even, I don't remember everything, but I remember being one of these things where Mr. Smart math me with like down, you know, like funnels and all this stuff was like, this is no way, there's no way this is going to work. Right. I like to think of, um, onboarding funnels, like slides, like you just want users to be able, like, if they just like take one step onto your onboarding, like, whoops, suddenly I'm a user, right? Like (laughs) it's just like impossible not to. Um, but I've since learned that that's not always the case, especially I'll just last complicating anecdote is in B2B, which is what I work in now. All that physics changes because people have like a very different experience with a product and you can actually have quite a bit of friction and it doesn't affect things too. It may affect like no, this is everybody's gonna tweet at me about how painful entitlements are in revenue cat. And I'm like, I know, I know we're gonna fix it, but people will work over it, right? And so, like, but uh, yeah, I still think it's it's good to have that mentality that like make it as smooth as possible. But you know, it doesn't always it's not always the case, right? Like yeah, <laughs> sometimes to, a little bit of onboarding friction creates a better product. For sure. Yeah. And to David's point, it sounds like that creates a little bit more commitment, right? When you have to choose your full, not only the area code, but like the full number. And so if anything, it it makes me wonder what else should we be adding? Yeah. Like funnel? asking them like, Hey, what are you going to use? Well, maybe that's not good for a thing called burner, but like, <laughs> yeah. I, like, I've actually considered that though. That's yeah, like what's your yeah. use case? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, helpful for down, down the funnel customization. Sure. Of like what type of content are we feeding them? What type of modals are we sending? What What's the email yeah. flow? And, and now we're starting to really optimize for that, for CRM. Um, and, and that's going to be very exciting. I think for in a, especially a product in a utility category, like if you can like smartly integrate some of that stuff, that's going to help on churn, you know, like it's agreed. It's not commoditized. Agreed. You guys have a brand, but like, it, you know, I can set up a Twilio account and make a burner thing. Right. But so like the more you invest in, yeah, getting people to to lock in. I, there's this. It's a billion years old now, but this like back in those Evernotes when they were raising their Series B, their deck leaked, and it was really interesting how they thought about inputting data, creating lock in, right? And they credited that a lot with their really great consumer subscription growth. And I think not enough apps, especially in probably utility categories, like think about smart ways to do that, right? And so yeah, the, if you can figure out ways to get users to invest in your app, that's going to just help you right down the line. So we've been talking a lot about um, experiments and getting into specifics and tactics and everything, but I I do want to take a step back and talk about the ideation for roadmap and experiments. Um, Yeah. I'd love to just get your thinking about 
like what experiments to run. And, you know, sometimes it's so often counterintuitive, like Jacob was saying, like you, you don't want to test the 25 page onboarding, but you probably should. So how do you think about like what crazy experiments to run? What, you know, outside the box thinking is maybe going to actually um, produce better results. And how, so how do you pick what to work on? Yeah, so it usually starts with uh, a brainstorm. And it's important to me that the brainstorm has like a bunch of different people. Uh, ideally, an analytics person, a designer, hopefully an engineer, customer support people. Like, I, I want everyone who touches the product to be included in that brainstorm a lot of the time. And that's just really helpful because there's so many different things you can possibly test and you never know where the next great idea is coming from. Um, and so that's like step one is having that brainstorm. And then from there, uh, discussing technical complexity with engineering to figure out how long will each of these take, um, right? Because there might be something that's like medium to high opportunity, but insanely high complexity. Right. And it's going to take months to build, right? And so at that point, is that worth it? Or is the high, like the medium to high opportunity with like a very low lift worth it, right? Like that second option is going to be where you're going to want to start. So, and as an engineer, you're going to want to find that out early in the process. <laughs> right, right. And so this is all happening before the roadmap is set. Um, and so, you know, just mixing the brainstorming with the complexity estimates. Another thing is also looking at like the market, right? There's a bunch of second phone number apps. There's a bunch of apps in general. I, I, I've gone through dozens and dozens of apps, screenshotted every mm -hmm. single screen in their app, put it all in Figma. And then use that as a starting point for the brainstorm to like get everyone's creative juices flowing. And I think that's really helpful as well is to see how other people are doing it. And then, you know, try to take the good things that they're doing and improve on those from there, just synthesizing into a roadmap. How do you balance the technical complexity component? Because some of the, some of the experiments, you know, like, I mean, again, get to back to Jacob's story, like putting 25 pages and asking for information that you then have to store and then personalize the rest of the app. Like that was probably a, a massive technical lift. And, you know, and, and Jacob intuitively was like, this is not going to work. Luckily I had a visionary boss who pushed <laughs> yeah. me through it. So when do you, yeah, when do you push past those technical complexities? Is it, there's a hypothesis that it will be a huge benefit that, that there's going to be this massive change and, like how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, I think sizing the opportunity is really helpful, right? So a good example is that we're working on uh, a premium burner, like a plus burner plus, and we're thinking through what are the different features, um, and kind of going through this entire process that I just mentioned. Right? There's unlimited numbers on there. I've been meaning to ask you about that. <laughs> so actually, all of our subscription plans have unlimited calls and texting. Um, not unlimited numbers. That would right. be that would be crazy. I don't think, but, but that's want... the cost basis. I think with like the backing networks, right? It's like they charge you per number, so it might be undoable. But I was like, somebody's going to pay a thousand dollars a month for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have to we have to deal with spam and stuff yeah, on right, our platform. Yeah. You don't so want like, to we don't a... we don't want that to be honest. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so you're saying opportunities, right? Like the sizing the opportunities. Yeah, and so part of that involves. Um, sometimes it's just estimating, right? Like, oh, if X percent purchase at this rate, um, what is like the revenue going to be? 
And then for something as big as like a plus product, you want to make sure you're including the right features, right? So we're doing tons of surveying to make sure like, what are people not only interested in, but what are they willing to pay for? Um, And so I use two pricing models to do that. The Gabor Granger model and the Van Westendorp model. And so these are two different survey models that basically ask questions about pricing. I think uh, the Van Westendorp model is something like, are you interested in buying Burner Plus with XYZ features for this price? If yes, survey done. If no, what about for this price, $10 cheaper? And then you start to see the percentage of people who are extremely likely, likely, not that likely, Mm. definitely not likely to purchase. And then you calibrate that with like assumptions. And there's like step-by-step instructions online that you can find on YouTube. Uh, YouTube is a great source. I highly (laughs) recommend it. Um, And so we use that to come up with a pricing, a, a price point that will, you know, balance maximizing revenue, but also getting as many users as possible on it. And we also are doing smoke testing. So basically showing users Burner Plus and seeing if they're interested in purchasing before they can actually get it. And so then we measure... Yeah, like a CTA that's like actually purchase or one that's like, tell me later or... No, like actually purchase. And then you give them the womp womp paywall, like, or the exactly. modal that's like, sorry, not ready yet, but thanks for your interest. Coming soon. Coming very yeah. soon. I love Engineers. consumer because you have so many users. You can like <laughs> just tiny little thing. You can do a little weird experiment like that and like can be so informative. Same with the pricing experimentation, right? Like you have so many users with a consumer app, like you can mm-hmm. get surveys out and get significance on something that, that, that finicky, right? Um, yeah. And I, I don't think... I'll say from personal experience, like in my past, net was not nearly as bullish on surveys because, like, I think I was just I didn't like talking to people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but surveys are great; you don't actually have to talk to them. Like, you just <laughs> you send the link, you send an email, and people tell you, and it's and it's and it's some way scientific and stuff like that. So that's interesting. We'll have to put a link in the notes to those models because yeah. I think that's something I've never heard of before. That it'd be interesting yeah. to look. I'll, I'll send that over. Well, there's like a million other things that I wanted to talk about, but we we do need to wrap up. Any last thoughts as we wrap? I know uh, Burner is hiring. Um, are you hiring on your team specifically or, or any uh, specific job postings you want to want to shout out and anything else you want to share with the listeners as we wrap up? Yeah, we, Burner is hiring. Um, we'd love if you're interested in the product, um, if you're interested in working at a high growth, successful business, um, this is a great opportunity. The team is really great. Um, we didn't. I don't think I touched on like why I joined Burner, uh, but the reason was... Uh, to be completely honest, I didn't know too much about Burner when I first got my like thumbs up for the first round interview. I just applied to a bunch of places and <laughs> um, Burner came back and I was like, okay, so let me do some research. Did lots of research. It was really cool. And then talked to my manager in the first round. I was like, oh, this person's really cool. I would love to work with all of these people. Uh, and that's something that I value a lot um, in the workplace is just you know a great environment. And we are hiring on lots of different teams. I think we're hiring a director of customer support and finance, lots of engineering. Um, you can check out the, the roles online, but if you don't see the role that you think you would like, we're, we accept all applications. We just want great talent. Um, and if we think it's a good fit, like we're going to make an opening for it. How many folks are there now? 30. 
30. Oh, that's a great size. Like we're slightly a little bit bigger than that, but like we're like 50, but like it's small enough. You can know everybody and yeah. And, but big enough that you have like help, um, <laughs> and like yeah. you could do things. Totally. Um, so it's a, it's a great time, especially for like, if you're like focused on an app, that's super fun. So that's um, awesome. I would have thought y'all were much bigger. I mean, having used the apps, product, David, like huge leverage, there's huge leverage ago. in apps. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I mean, as an indie developer, I often get people emailing as if like, I've got like 20 people on staff and it's like, oh, it's just me part-time and my developer part-time and a designer mm-hmm. we contract with a few hours every once in a while. Uh, and then, but then I make the same assumptions, right? <laughs> like, yeah. It's hard I to tell. Four years ago, Burner was a huge company. So that leverage is incredible. It's, it's amazing what y'all are doing with just a 30 person team. Thank you. Yeah, so we'll we'll include links to uh, the hiring page and and to Giancarlo's uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff uh, in the show notes. Uh, but again, thank you so much for being on and um, a lot of great uh, uh, stuff that, that we were able to talk about today. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. 